Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Not bad, Matt. It's been a big week. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, thank you for joining us. I know you've been busy in the background um, sorting out a particular issue. It's on the lips of everyone this week, all over uh, Uranium and Twittersphere, uh, which is uh, Namibia. Statement made. We weren't quite sure what it meant. Do you know? Yeah, and fortunately, the Namibian government has given us an insight to what it means as well. So, of course, Bloomberg broke a story very early on Tuesday that uh, Namibia was considering nationalising its resources and oil and gas sector. Now, when I say they broke the story, look, this is in many respects old news. In fact, the quote that they attributed to the Namibian Minister of Mines, Mr Tom Alwindo, he'd already made on the 1st of March in Parliament in the public domain. Um, but it was the first time that Bloomberg had heard about it. And unfortunately, there was no context provided in the article. And flighty, nervous investors being what they are, uh, of course, reacted. Paladin Energy being the leader on the ASX for uranium Namibian stocks uh, found itself quite rapidly down 20%. Uh, they decided to call a trading halt, which kind of added additional notoriety to the whole situation. And then we saw Reuters, the Australian Financial Review, and even the bastion of left-wing anti-uranium sentiment in Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, jump on the bandwagon with a snippet in their nightly news in which they simplified everything down to Namibians said there they might nationalise uranium mines. So what really happened is there was a workshop taking place which was jointly held by two parliamentary committees, the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Natural Resources and the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Economics. Now, the reason that these two parliamentary committees got together is the workshop was all about how Namibian people going forward in the future maximise the benefits that they can achieve from their natural resources. And all of the background to this is because about a year ago, oil was for the very first time discovered in Namibia by two super majors, Total and Shell, um, in obviously in um, consortiums. And what was previously thought to be very, very unlikely, which is that Namibia would win the oil bonanza, suddenly became a reality. And the talk on the ground, even amongst the sceptics, is that it could be as big as the oil riches in Angola. Now, the opening remarks by the minister at this workshop uh, were all about oil. And he talked openly that oil for an African country can either be a blessing or a curse. And he then went into talking about a range of issues that Namibia needs to think about going forward. And in that respect, it was a really mature discussion. It's the sort of thing Australia just can't do when it comes to nuclear power. But tiny African nation that only achieved independence in 1990, they seem to be able to do it. So he was talking about the potential for oil to create corruption, the potential to be highly in, uh, exclusive rather than inclusive with enrichment of a small number of people and the poverty-stricken uh, majority of the country not participating. He talked about the culture of um, entitlement 
in Namibia where connected local people feel entitled to receive the benefits without doing the work. It was really far reaching. And as part of it, he touched on in the long run, his words, not mine, in the long run, what sort of policy settings do we need to make sure that the country uh, maximises the benefit to the country as well as maintaining the open door to foreign investors. And then the 51 words that he said after that led to 400 million being taken off the market capitalisation of Paladin as they were presented without any real context. So as far as the ministry is concerned, as far as you are concerned, there is no intent to nationalize, take equity in uh, uranium companies in Namibia. Is that right? Absolutely. So, and then luckily um, by yesterday, the official spokesperson of the Ministry of Mines and Energy issued a clarifying statement saying just that, that uh, there's no uh, intent to do it. Existing licenses are safe, um, and but what they did include is that in the longer term, in uh, you know Namibia, like any country, reserves its rights to adjust its policy, and this is what this is all about. Uh, with oil and gas, and this is really about oil and gas, and the Namibians have made sure that the net is cast a little bit broader to include hard rock minerals, uh, as they should. You can't have a policy debate or a public debate about one and not the other. It just doesn't make sense. So it's all about the oil and gas discovery, as I say. Namibian parastatal NAMCOR gets a 10% interest in exploration blocks. And when you've had millions spent on failed oil wells for the last three decades, that seems about right. Then suddenly oil was discovered and the Namibians started doing their research around the rest of Africa and they realised that a 10% government interest when it comes to oil, not hard rock, but when it comes to oil, a 10% interest is right at the bottom end of what African governments typically get. Uh, they typically get between 20 and 50% if you look across the continent of countries that have discovered oil. So I suppose what the Namibian government's doing is they're saying, well, for the next companies that come along who aren't facing the same risks because they know there's oil there somewhere because it's already been discovered, is 10% appropriate. In the context of also talking about the governance and the systems and the processes and the um, those other things that I was talking about, including ensuring, in the minister's words, that exploration license is given to those who have the capability to do it, rather than creating the moral hazard of offering it to local speculators. So in, in fact, the Namibian Minister of Mines, Mr. Tom Alwindo, should be commended in total for the process that's being undertaken. And if you go to some of the footage covering this event and some of the other public consultations he's been doing, he spends as much time talking to Namibians about why they need to adjust their expectations and why they need to understand that left in the ground, this oil and minerals has absolutely no benefit to them and they need to welcome in foreign investment. He spends as much time talking to Namibians about that as he does talking about the issue that, of course, made it into the press, which is that over time, Namibia wants to look at if their 10% interest in oil is appropriate in the African context. And given the vast margins that hydrocarbons um, 
uh, have, which just, uh, is very distinguishing from hard rock minerals. And I might add that part of the debate that's been going on as well is whether Namibia should stand up to all of the first world pressure that's being brought to bear to say you should not develop your oil and gas discovery in the first place. So this is a far-reaching discussion that's taking place where they they need to answer that question first. And I think they will. I think they'll say to the first world, look, you had the advantage. If you found oil, you got to prosper and develop your economies from it. And we're going to do the same. Thank you very much. And now they need to figure out in what shape uh, both their um, regulatory structure is, but also they've still got to figure out their fiscal structure for this structures for this new oil discovery. Okay. And who are you allocating a winner of the week to this week? Well, the winner of the week this week, I'm giving to UR Energy because they've just announced that they've recommenced production at Lost Creek. That's great because uh, it's been tough conditions there in Wyoming, as we know from Peninsula. And, and I see that in their quarterly report for the first quarter, they did describe that it seems to be the snowiest winter on record up in Wyoming. But it's also great news because it's signalling a slow return to health of the US uranium sector, which has reduced down to effectively zero uranium production. Yeah, they do produce a few pounds here and there, but it's such a small amount of production that in their annual statistics, they can't even disclose uh, the amount of production because it breaches, it doesn't have enough diversity to breach, uh, to maintain confidentiality of who's producing. So it's a good sign for them. Uh, they were able to do it because, partly because they've got contracts uh, into 2023, uh, including selling 100,000 pounds to the Department of Energy with their Federal Strategic Uranium Reserve. But they've also been writing contracts from 2024 to 2028. So I understand they've written contracts for about 600,000 pounds of delivery per annum over those six years, and with a bit of flex up and down. And so their intent is to start producing at that 600,000 pounds per annum, which is about half of their license capacity. So good news for the sector. It's always good to see success stories um, it's great to see that asset coming back into production. And no doubt there's been a huge amount of hard work and effective work that goes behind that result. Should we go to Tweet of the Week? Uh, now, this I, I think you're going to allocate this to an old friend of mine, um, an old, a, a fellow Irishman who has to sit in the same room as when I was working down in London. Can you, who, do you think, who are you going to give this to? Yeah, so Jared Reid put a very interesting tweet that highlights the electricity volatility that unfortunately a number of markets are just going to have to get used to. So as we can see on the screen, he's foreshadowing some very significant negative spot prices in various electricity markets in Europe, um, noting that Germany might hit, uh, when the tweet was written, might hit negative 129 euros a megawatt hour. So it's a talking point because we've said on this show many times that the problem with intermittent energy sources is the volatility and people who just thought they were running a manufacturing business will need to become energy traders to somehow try and manage this extreme volatility. Now, many people, of course, would look at a negative 
power price and think that's an opportunity, but uh, it creates untold distress at various levels within grid operators. Uh, it makes otherwise um, viable assets unviable. It, of course, wipes out traders when they're on the wrong side of it. And in certain markets, the way that it works is companies who or energy producers who continue to deliver into a negative market then have to pay. So that hurts baseload uh, because you can't quickly close down the gates on a hydro program and you can't quickly close down a nuclear power plant. And so it ends up just decaying what are otherwise reliable baseload sources. So firming as, uh, as people who follow this show would know is an awful long way off if it's not natural gas. And unfortunately, this is the sort of volatility that we might just need to get used to. There is, of course, one, and that's why we're here talking about nuclear power. Well, here we go. Moonshots and fizzers, always uh, a favourite of mine. What have you got for us this week? Uh, well, it's a recurring theme, which is China's enormous rollout of nuclear power and their dramatic build program and the dominance of their build program compared to other countries that are advancing nuclear power in a much uh, more careful way. So Professor Quake's a favourite amongst uranium investors for his extraordinary work and his tireless um, service updating us on the latest. Uh, he put a, a very good chart out there that I think we can also put up on the screen. And it just shows the dominance of China as a proportion of immediate demand growth of nuclear power and therefore immediate demand growth of uranium. And he does make the point in his, uh, in his tweet that very soon China will be the largest market in the world and it'll eclipse all of the other markets put together. Now, in my modeling, I believe that by 2040, China's annualized demand for uranium will be more than all of the uranium that's mined around the world today. So let that sink in a little bit. People talk about supply deficits in this sector, which of course are real. We are in a supply deficit, particularly when you consider primary mined uranium versus primary consumption of uranium in nuclear reactors globally. But if you've got one single player who's consuming the equivalent of all of today's mined uranium, it gives you a feel for the vast quantities of new production and new mines that are going to be required by 2040. And that's before we even start to think about the hockey stick approach in this sector as all of the additional SMR options and new technology start to come in towards the back end of the next decade. So we'd expect the 2040 to 2050 and 60 growth to be even more dramatic. So on the one hand, a lot of new Uranium demand will require vast quantities of new supply. But on the other hand, China's not going to wait until 2039 to start securing that supply. Uh, we've seen it with the um, vote in Kazatomprom where they, CNNC had such a large contract with them that it ended up being more than their net worth. So they needed to go to shareholders on that and that vote went through. We've seen it in the fact that they've acquired both of the large operating mines in Namibia, uh, that they're investing in elsewhere around the world, even though they can't obtain majority stakes there. And of course, they're the main game in town when it comes to new contracts. So profound impacts that China will have. And that's been a consistent theme through this show 
over the last three years. Bungle of the week, our viewers' favourite. What have we got? After the week that we've had, I thought we might go a little bit lighthearted with the bungle of the week, and then I realised it's not lighthearted at all. I Some BBC headlines caught my eye saying that, and I'll say this slowly for everybody, using pig fat as green jet fuel will hurt planet. Experts warn. So I think it has to be a tie here. It has to be a tie for the bungle of the week between the people who thought pig fat in aeroplanes was a good idea in the first place and the experts who decided to write an entire report on it um, just to show that it was a bad idea. And, and by the way, that was a Belgium uh, institute that's responsible for biofuel. Now, when they should really be looking at all of the biofuel fraud that's undertaken around the world, they instead choose to calculate how many pigs it would require if you were stripping the poor things of their warmth layer to fly from, in this case, Paris to New York. But it's a bungle because what it, at a serious level, what it illustrates is how hard it's going to be to find solutions for decarbonisation in difficult to uh, deep decarbonising factors of our economy. And another great one that we talked about last week is shipping. Very hard to decarbonise if you don't use nuclear energy. Um, there are a large number of industrial processes that are absolutely tailor-made for small modular reactors. And without them, we're going to be putting up the whiteboard and writing stuff like, hey, what about pig fat to make biofuel? Um, now, there are solutions that uh, Rolls-Royce, for example, are working on in aviation fuel. Uh, you can create, use nuclear power to create synthetic kerosene, clean synthetic kerosene, um, and we're hoping that new technology opens the door for that as a, let's say, a more viable solution than pig fat and a, certainly a more uh, long-term sustainable solution than continuing to use fossil-based kerosene. Uh Brandon, I appreciate your time. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Matt.